Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. So, given what we know about climate change, do people in developing countries prioritize economic growth, jobs, and monetary gains above all else, including the environment? To learn more, I'm with the wonderful, the magnificent Eddie Molesky, who is Professor of Political Economy at Duke University. Eddie, welcome. Mm. Alice, it's really great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay, so. Eddie, in Vietnam, where you and I both work, um, in 2016, millions of dead fish washed up on um, the central coastline, and this was caused by a toxic industrial waste spill. And the company said, the company representative said, fish or steel. You know, you, you either have the environment or you have economic growth. And people went out in protest. We choose fish. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so then you wanted to test this. What, what do people actually prioritize? So tell me, tell me about the survey that you run. Yeah, so we, we thought this question was really symbolic of, uh, of an issue that Vietnam has been facing and other developing countries have been facing, which is these are growing economies that need to produce jobs and raise wages of their citizens and reduce poverty. But at the same time, this, in an emerging world of climate change and the, the, the effects the negative effects on the environment are becoming increasingly salient for Vietnamese citizens. So the way we went about this is to d design a survey experiment on a, on, um, a random sample of Vietnamese citizens. Um, we, we took advantage of UNDP's um, and the Sakota survey, which has a nationally representative survey of 14,000 individuals. It's amazing, amazing. Amazing, it's really huge. And it's face-to-face um, -face surveys done on computer tablets by really well-trained interviewers. And so because of that, we were able to take advantage of the power of those tablets mm -hmm. to be able to, you do what you um, call a randomized conjoint survey experiment. So we, we think that's a pretty cool way to get at it because in the conjoint survey, as opposed to other ways of doing surveys, yep. Um, we're, we're not asking citizens, hey, tell me what you prefer, the mm. environment or the, or the economy, because in a lot of cases, it, people try to please interviewers, and, just, and so they're going to try and answer what, they interview, mm. answer what the interviewer wants to hear. Instead, what we did is just simply randomize, like a, like a slot machine in a mm. Las, Vegas, um, Las, Las Vegas casino, a bunch of different features of firms. This firm is going to produce this much pollution. This firm has this environmental history. This firm is going to produce this many jobs. It's in this sector. Just choose a firm. Don't mm -hmm. tell us why you chose it. Just choose it. And once we know their choice, we can then back out what were the key features of the choice. And you also control for individual level characteristics and sociotropic characteristics. You know, Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we have, we have, because of it's a really great survey, we have a whole range of information on age, gender, income, profession of the individuals and then we have information at the provincial level about the um, how much investment the province already has, how much environmental damage has already been done in the province and we can look to see if those features, um, what, what you might call the pocketbook features, the income into the individual or you might call sociotropic features, how mm. much they think about the rest of their community, mm. how those impact their choice because it, it might be that it might be that the job is good for me, yes. which is a pocketbook decision, mm. but I'm more concerned about my community's environmental yeah. health, which is a sociotropic decision. Mm. So we want to be able to sort of try and figure out which was driving people's concerns, pocketbook or what we call egotropic or sociotropic demands. And tell me, what were the findings? So I, I th we think the effects are pretty staggering. So like after we, after we remove this tendency, what you call social desirability mm. bias to please the surveyors, that it's, it is very clear in, sort of in the direct effects 
that Vietnamese citizens yes. of all stripes, um, they while they while they want businesses that are going to create jobs or mm-hmm. generate revenue mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. province, um, th- it those don't increase nearly as much as you would imagine, mm-hmm. and it, so moving from a thousand to ten thousand jobs really doesn't improve people's yes, um, yeah. people's beliefs about whether that's a good business to mm-hmm. locate mm-hmm. much at not uh, much at all. So economic matters, but it doesn't nearly matter as much as the environmental consequences, no. right? So a firm that causes or has a history, and so before it moved to that province, it was in another province, has been cited for um, environmental violations to damaging 100 households, is rejected at about 30%. This mm. is a firm that um, didn't damage any households at all. Mm. Um, and even if you think that's, that's too strong a treatment, a firm that has a green certificate, which means it's gone through ISO standards on environmental production, is selected 25% of the time versus a firm that creates a thousand jobs is only selected 10% of the time. And even firms that are just applying for a green certificate, so just showing that they have an interest mm-hmm. in, um, in meeting environmental needs, are selected about 12% mm-hmm. of the time. So also more than, a, more than the production of jobs. So that was really fascinating to us. And then, then the second thing we were interested in the paper is we decided, well, let's, let's look at that threshold. Mm-hmm. You know, is it that they always prefer the environment mm-hmm. over, and it's actually, that, that doesn't appear to be the case. Like we can actually, to some extent, model what mm-hmm. economists call an elasticity. Mm-hmm. How much are you willing to trade off one for the yes. other? And what we can see is that people tend to prefer the businesses that are good for the economy, mm-hmm. but only up into a point. Once you cross a threshold of environmental damage, that, those businesses get universally rejected. Mm. And so whether this is waste or history of pollution. And so it, it seems pretty clear, and the argument we make in the paper is that um, Vietnamese people, when they hit the streets and they wore those signs that said fish versus steel, uh, they weren't lying, right? That they, they definitely are willing to sacrifice manufacturing industries in favor of a cleaner environment. So I guess that's one question. Okay, so I have a couple of questions, Eddie. All right, hit me. Question number one. To what extent do these exante preferences actually reflect people's revealed preferences? Because it's one thing to look at a survey and say, oh, I'd rather have, I'd rather have a nicer firm. But if a firm actually turned up in your, in your area and, and offered 100 jobs, you know, when you've got the tangible gain right in mm-hmm. front of you, I wonder whether people would make the same decision. Yeah, so, okay, well, so, I said, like, first, let me answer that the first Please. way we know, which is that, that we have seen some revealed preferences mm. in terms of the protests, right? right so we yes. have, and there, and that was just one protest. There have been an enormous number of protests of, over the environment recently. Yes. Caused by salination in the Mekong Delta, caused by the, um, a policy of cutting down trees in Hanoi. Yes. Right? Yes. Where, um, where citizens in Hanoi went out and, um, and, and literally locked themselves to yeah, trees to keep them from the trees, cutting yes. it down. We've seen this in between. So, there, so if that is a revealed preference in terms mm-hmm. of their behavioral change, yeah, people have been willing to sacrifice their time and energy mm-hmm. and even economic treasure mm-hmm. in order for the environment. And then I think we've, we've also seen other situations too. Um, so for example, like, you know, I, I, I create an index that ranks Vietnamese provinces based on their investment environment, and I often have to travel to provinces. Um, You've slightly downplayed that. Eddie has, um, Eddie has this phenomenally important uh, provincial competitiveness index, which has been really integral 
to Vietnamese businesses, really, really integral. And yeah, it sort of charts. And they're desperate to be number one. People are desperate to be number yeah, one. Yeah, they're, yeah they're the leaders' careers <laughs> depend on it. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, um, so, so that's it's a huge <laughs> index. It's a hugely important. But index. but the cool part is it yeah. gives me a chance to talk with yes. provincial leaders yes. about what their interests are and what they're yes. trying to maximize. Yeah. And one question has come up in talking about that mm-hmm. index is, um, well, you you're you're trying to incentivize to max us to maximize. Um, the business environment to promote business growth, but yes. we have these other demands that are coming at yes. us. And how do we deal with these trade-offs? So in particular, where this has really um, been really important is provinces that have large service sectors or ecotourism sectors mm. like Da Nang mm. or Quang Ning um, in, explicitly made a decision and wanted us to know that they were going to stop granting licenses to dirty industries because they thought it might... Um, it, they thought it might injure their crown jewel, which was their tourist sector. So, yes. so, so at least in those sort of anecdotal pieces, we do see provincial officials tend to be aware of citizens' demand about the environment and are trying to do things that do that. Um, and then we, um, and then we see this now. The direct question you're asking. Like, so wait, can I ask a question about your provincial competitiveness index? Sh- yeah. Does it have? Have they asked you to slightly tweak it to make it? more a reflection of the quality of the investment that you're getting or the quality of the environmental so regulation? That, that has been something that several provinces yeah. have asked for. And, um, and in fact, um, this year with the Asia Foundation, mm. um, um, we, in, at the behest of many provinces, mm. we included a new module. I haven't received the data yet, which is an, um, an environmental and climate change resilience module that's going to allow um, leaders to be able to... Um, basically rank their cities against others in terms of whether they're prepared for the negative effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, obviously Vietnam is a, is a country with a massive um, coastline. Yes, right, yes, Where course. climate yep. change is going to be really dam- damaging. Incredibly vulnerable. I wonder, the variation of provinces that are concerned, uh, when you, so just sidestepping from the, from, the, from the paper, when you're back to it a little bit later, when you speak to provincial leaders about their concerns about env- the environment. Does it vary with income levels? So for example, Wen Wen Ang at the University of Michigan, when she looked at sort of China's um, economic growth, she finds that, you know, at first these coastline, uh, these coastline areas were accepting any industry, but then as they got more and more industries, they became slightly pickier and they became more selective and they said no to the dirty industries. <laughs> and it was only the much poorer inland Western uh, areas that were still accepting the dirty industries because they were accepting anyone. But as the as the coastline uh, places got a higher level of income, they were saying no to the dirty industries. So there, she saw a staggered sort of income level effect. I wonder if you're seeing that too in I, Vietnam, I or, it, does, or does it just vary according to tourism potential? And even if you're slightly, if you're less economically developed as a an area, you, yeah. might, you have the tourism industry. So yeah, so I I so I, I think that Yin Yin Ang's pattern that she mm. sees is probably there, but I think you would have to take into account the comparative advantage. I mean, yes, so like, yes. like Ha Long Bay, yeah, sure, right, sure, or sure, Nha Chang, yeah, yeah. like these are, you see, so these we are... We mentioned the, very beautiful places. Yes. <laughs> so these are endowed with, yes, like, sort yes, of, of you course. know, like the gift Natural of gift, assets, yes. right, beauty of nature, and yeah. so, like, so from the beginning, they were going to be attracted to, and they were, course. and that trade-off was going to be implicit from the beginning, and, and then also the way Vietnam's tax revenue structure works in a, in a way sort of incentivizes provincial leaders to double down on what's already there. So like we were, you and I were, have been talking for a long time about um, Bing Zuong, which is a big industrial province yes. in the south, which is kind of 
the factory of Vietnam that produces most of Vietnam's manufactured goods, and it's grown really fast with manufacturing, but it is still a manufacturing hub, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think will continue to be. It's it's starting transition transition to higher value added industries, yes. but in terms of being soon, they they don't have it. They're they're not going to try and develop a service sector, and that has to do with the fact that um, they they retain all revenue over um, a biannual target negotiated with the central government. And so what you want to do is maximize tax revenue by basically catering towards the industries that are already there. Yes. So, so you kind of see that tendency about officials. It, it, it may or may not be the right decision, but it, it's the way, it's the tax system in Vietnam sort of incentivizes that behavior. So question, oh, when you speak to, when you, when you tour Vietnam, when you speak to the businesses and provincial and provincial leaders especially are provincial leaders concerned that they've been prioritizing investment too much and not regulating toxic industries enough like, is that a concern that is a yes this is a this is a common concern I hear now and now I, I and we, I should tell you that like we don't observe much provincial variation in this paper mm. and we have the data to observe mm -hmm. it so like we went looking to see is this behavior different when you compare really poor versus really rich provinces? Mm. And we don't really see too much of an effect. I mean, the effect is there, but it, it's not what we would that call... Because that, that bucks, that's bucks what you'd expect at the subnational level of the environmental Kuznetska. Because the, Kuznet, the environmental Kuznetska is saying, desperately poor people will say, I'll take any growth going. Just give me the growth. I need a job. I need yeah. to pro uh, provide for my family. And only a bit later on, after a certain degree of existential security is provided, do you see that inflection point with people shifting yeah. their values. That that's right. So and you do not see that, neither at the provincial level or at the individual, at the individual level. level. And you would expect it to be there. Yeah, it's not there. That and rocked my priors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you, I, it did for me too. And mm -hmm. I think you can make different arguments. Like mm -hmm. you could say, for example, well, Vietnam is just not near the inflection point yet. So even the very rich places are still well below the traditional business yes. curve inflection yes, points, yes. right? But, um, so that, that might be the case, but I actually don't think that's the case. In fact, I, it's, it's more likely to be true that... Um, the inflection point is now occurring much earlier in developing countries. For... Tell me more. <laughs> so, I, so, um, so the Danny Roderick has made this argument about. So, I think let's step back for a second. Yes. People should understand a little bit of what, about the environmental Kuznets curve is, and just to describe it simply, the, yes. basically this idea. Think of like an inverted U shape. Okay. That at low at low levels of GDP per capita. Um, you tend to see very little pollution. As countries grow, there tends to be more pollution. And at a certain point, this is what we've mm. been calling this inflection point, countries that become quite rich actually start to see declines in pollution. Yeah, so they get to the top of the hill. They climb a hill and then they go down the hill. Yeah, and there's, so different, there's different arguments for what might be driving that. Mm. So, for example, you might say this is all about technology change, right? right. So this is, um, this is essentially cleaner industries, high-tech industries entering and, and people using better technology, and so that's what's driving it. Mm. Alternatively, people have said, no, this is really about post-materialist values. Yes, as, as you modernization become, theory, right, right? Right, as you become richer, you, 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 can, you sort of move up Maslow's yeah, criteria yeah. of needs. I don't need to worry about sustenance anymore, and I don't need to worry about security for mm. my family. I can just... I can just I can start to think about green or yeah, right yeah. or uh, or other sort of spiritual issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a third one, which which is I think really relevant to this conversation. And I've always found that a bit weird. Like suddenly I get a sudden level of income, and then boom, my preferences shift. I, I anyway, anyway right. Well, I so mean, tell so, me the third one. Uh, you're right. So well, the third one has to do with 
the sector of the economy changes. Mm. So, and this is what Kuznets himself talked a lot about is that you you move from agriculture into industry mm. and as industry pays higher wages people move out of agriculture into industry and they tend to associate their income with industry and so they align themselves with industry and since industry tends to be dirtier than agriculture they tend to be more polluting mm-hmm. but um but later on the service sector tends to be pay higher wages mm. than the manufacturing sector so people move out of the manufacturing mm. sector into the service sector you can think about western developed countries mm. And and so his and so that argument is that what, what's driving the Kuznets curve is people now associating their livelihoods with cleaner service sector industries, which right. would be damaged by the environment, say restaurants, tourism. So, um, what Danny Roderick has shown mm. recently is that a whole bunch of countries, for a variety of reasons, um, including. Um, competition against China being nearly impossible mm-hmm. in manufacturing sectors and greater automation mm-hmm. means that um, a lot of countries are finding much earlier that it, it pays to shift into the service sector. And so this, that shift into the service sector is occurring at a much lower level of income than, than you find in other places. And if that's the case, mm. then people's livelihoods are being associated with service at a much lower level, and so their environmental preferences are shifting at a lower level. So, it, so people sort of people looking at this haven't connected the dots here, but there have been there's Danny Roderick making an argument about the environmental causes or about the prematurity industrialization, and yes. there's another group of people making an argument about the inflection point on the Kuznets curve shifting backwards towards lower levels of income. Mm. So, and I, I think there's something to that, right? Mm. So I, I think that um, even Vietnam is not a country that you normally would associate with this. It, it still has a growing manufacturing Roaring sector. Growing growth, yeah. The, the truth is that the service sector is actually growing faster yes. in Vietnam and that the labor, the labor and growth is, is growing in the service sector faster. And this, this has to do with things like urbanization, but it, it may be the case that people are starting to associate their livelihoods with the service sector and that is what is driving this, right? Mm. So that, um, and so, and, I, and, and I, that argument I think is consistent with what, with what we're finding to some extent. And, the, um, and we, I mean, we don't, once again, we don't find a lot of differences based on income and we do find very slight differences based on sector of employment. But, mm, I think there's one way of making sense of the, of the point that the income level doesn't make that much difference. And I know that's the point that people made at your APSA talk is that when people are comparing these different firms, they're also just looking at different kinds of economic gains and losses. Yes. And if a firm has a history of destroying, say, 100 houses, I mean, if I personally heard about a firm coming near my road that destroyed 100 houses, for me, I perceive that as an economic threat. Like, all my assets are in my house, right? Yeah, okay. that, that's my biggest, that's a huge economic hit for right. me. Yeah. Um, and if you're a farmer, it's your land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's all economic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess for that reason, we might not be surprised why a low-income person would be just as concerned about a high-income person because both these people their livelihoods will be affected. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. And I think mm. for like people who spend a lot of time interacting and in, mm. in emerging markets mm. and talking with people in emerging markets, I don't think our findings are, are particularly like jaw-dropping. Mm. I, I, but, but I think that 
the policy community might, right? Mm. There are there are a large number of people in the policy community have been arguing mm. that because these countries are poorer, because they're desperate for jobs, they're going to be more willing to accept the dirty industries. And so, and there's even been, it's, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not, but Larry Sumner's famously wrote a memo at the World Bank about sending the dirty industries to the developing countries because of this phenomenon. So, um, so the Kuznets curve has inspired a lot of policy making and people yes. have thought about this and so it's um so i think in our paper i think what we're confirming what i what what i suspect a lot of people who who interact and see people in developing countries think which is and and i think the the key point here is it's i think it's very difficult to divorce environmental preferences from what we call like green materialism yeah. my my job is associated my livelihood my associated with eco-tourism. and here's the point i also think that eddie is that sometimes in my work on corporate accountability with campaigns for corporate accountability across Europe, some of the pushback is like, you know, if our firms, if our companies are liable for environmental degradation in their supply chains, then maybe they'll stop going to places like Vietnam or DRC, so for example, Glencore, mm-hmm. uh, you know, polluted in Zambian rivers, polluted in Congolese rivers. You know, people say, oh, if you had that legislation, then Glencore would stop going to the Congo and that would be so bad for the people in the Congo. And what maybe might also be the situation is that actually people in Congo and Zambia don't want those dirty industries. Um, and it's, you know, it's not actually a bad thing for people in the Congo if there, there are fewer dirty industries there. You know, that's not a hit to them. Right. So I think at the very least, I think that the assumption that they want them is in question. Yes. Yes. Right. And, yes. that, um, and that we need better information about what their priorities are, especially in, in an era where the impact of climate change is impacting these countries first, yes. causing crises, right? You know, like, so, you know, here at, we're here at APSA right yes. now, and there are many, many papers here on climate cause, climate mm. migration or yes. climate disasters. And so these, what we're seeing right now is this effect is um, the, the increasing salience of climate change and environmental damage mm. in these countries is quite costly. Yeah. And citizens of these countries are maybe seeing it first. Mm. Um, and so we should pretty we should take their opinions upon this this seriously. I'm not I'm not saying that we shouldn't that they don't demand jobs, but I think we should be careful about our assumptions about what their preferences are. Yes. And then I think that this survey reveals this very clearly. Yes. Because here is a very rigorous survey asked in a very tight way in a way to minimize the type of biases that have affected other projects and that is what we're finding that there isn't a lot of differentiation and in general Vietnamese citizens across the board are pro-environment well you say that Eddie but I was very interested in something you told me earlier about that when you were sharing these findings in Vietnam someone maybe raised a question about your survey methodology and I thought this was brilliant so can you tell us about this oh sure so you know I um I always think it's really important to you know share your research with local experts and local actors and get a sense of how they feel that it that they're we're not just in the ivory tower here we're talking about real policy changes that affect people's lives and so I had the you know I have the opportunity to go to Vietnam quite often and in this case I had the opportunity to speak at the Vietnamese Association of Economics annual meeting and I presented the results of this paper and in general they were well received but there was a representative there um, of one of um, the most important provinces in Vietnam in terms of environmental growth this Mm. province called Mm. Bing Zuong and as we said Bing Zuong has been the location for it has I think 15 industrial Mm. zones Mm -hmm. and 
um, a ton, almost every Fortune 500 company is there in one way or another producing mm. from mm. everything from clothes to electronics mm. to, um, to, to automobiles. And, um, and the point that he was making is that wasn't the experience that he had talking with people in Bingzung, but particularly talking with migrants to Bingzung. And the, and the point that he raised, which I thought was really important, was that Bingzung's, Bingzung's population has tripled mm. in the past 10 years, and it's tripled because of migration moving to Bingzung for jobs. Yes. And, um, and he didn't raise this point, but I... But it occurred to me when he said it mm. that you know the way for the the fairest way to do a survey of of this scale yes is to sample off of household residency lists. Mm -hmm. So what we do is and it's a little bit complicated, but we have a two stage sampling process where we um, we select various geographic locations, mm -hmm. and then once we select those geographic locations, mm -hmm. we ask village leaders to produce a list mm. of the most recent residency. So these are people that have made themselves known mm. to the village head or ward leader mm. if they're in a city mm -hmm. about their residency. And, um, and then we sample off that and that's the way we get a representative sample across the entire country. That's mm -hmm. how we can draw 14,000 people. But, um, but as internal migration has really grown in Vietnam, mm. one thing that has become clear is that we're missing this large internal migration, which is which is now sizable, and Bingzong's tripling of its population, and you know, and of adding roughly two million people. And I find this staggering because if you're purposefully sampling, if you're sampling, if you happen to be sampling the people who are in residence, you're sampling people who've chosen, chosen to, to forth, you've chosen people who've chosen to stay. Yeah. So that is excluding the people who say, hey, I know that's a dirty industry, but I'm going to go anyway. I'm going anyway. Yeah. I'm going anyway because I want the rewards. I want the job. These, so these, like the, the migrants are the people that right. are paying the cost paying in order to get the job. And well, the, yeah, I mean, you know, you could say maybe they don't know how how bad the environment is before they go. Right. You, you, so you could you could explain this that way. But yeah, you do have a set of people who are like really, really keen on economic gains. Well, at least at the very least in his defense, what you would say is that even given the uncertainty, yeah, they chose and, yeah. to make the cost. Like, yeah, so I totally agree. I, like, so I, those, I, people, those people with different, slightly yeah, different preferences. Yeah, so like we, I, I thought that was a really great point. Brilliant, and like, brilliant. Uh, and, um, and then we've done some done some back of the envelope calculations and some yeah. robustness tests, and I, I think that you I think that you could say that there it, it might have some influence on it. It can't explain everything. Right, right, right. Right, but like, but I think you might say that it there there might be something here. So actually, I reached out to him, and um, and so we're we're going to work with them to actually do. Um, well, I hope this works out. I don't mm. know if it will work out mm. for sure. But we're going to try a different different sampling strategy there. So rather than sampling off a residential list, we're going to use GIS coordinates and sample polygons on um, of GIS coordinates and then interview everybody within the polygon. So then if a migrant happens to be there, we will nice. pick them up. Yeah. And we'll do that as a pilot. And if, if we think we get better results in the next version of the survey, then I think that's what we'll do throughout the country. And, I, and, I, and, and it's because... I, look, I... I have no problem being wrong. On yeah, this, right? I like, think that's key. We're dealing with we're dealing with a really important policy question, yes. and I want to be second guessed, and I want yes. other information, and I want to improve my research design in order to get it right. And if migration is what is causing this, let's let's nail this down. Let's yeah, figure yeah. it out. Yeah. So, Eddie, you know this is so awesome. And my biggest takeaway from um, from talking to you and to reading your work 
it's really about how to be an engaged academic. And one, to recognize that there's someone who can be phenomenally successful academically, like, you know, Chains of Love right now out in APSL, right? So you're phenomenally successful academically, but also you're doing this policy engagement, you know, contributing to public goods. And through contributing to public goods, people then invite you to stuff and through those contributions, through those conversations, you, do, you then get these, you know, academic benefits improving your research design. So, you know, there's a, it's all win-win. Yeah, I, so I, I think the win-win is exactly the right way mm. to phrase it. Like, I, I, I can't imagine doing either without the other. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. I think that the engagement has made me a better researcher, yes. helped me ask better questions, helped me second-guess my work. Yes. Um, and, and at the same time, my, have being exposed to, you know, academic theory it improves my predictions when I'm thinking about policymakers. Yes. And having to communicate to an academic audience for whom empirical rigor is so important has, has given me more confidence when I make policy recommendations. Yes, right? of course. So, so I, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that yeah, that th- those, are, those are the two components of who I am, and I think they can't be divorced. And, I, yeah, and, I, and, and obviously, I enjoy it, right? Because like, I feel like I'm making a difference. But I also think there's two points, the way that the policy engagement benefits you. One, it means that you're asking the substantive questions because you know what matters to people on the ground. So one, it's the questions. And two, when you're designing your research methods, you design them in a more accurate way that's going to address certain areas of bias that someone, you know, sitting in the ivory tower wouldn't get. I, I think that's fantastic. I hope we do. Yeah, no. I, I, if that is the goal, and I, if we can meet that, then I, then I think I've been successful. Eddie Maleski, it's been a great pleasure Thank to interview you. Thank you so much for joining me. Alice, thanks so much for having me. It's been so much fun.